Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 118. Hark, what sound breaks the inscrutable silence of the immense African felt? The sound of wagons. Dozens, which would become hundreds. Trundling along at about eight kilometers a day, the food trekkers were leaving the Cape for their promised land, albeit yet unidentified. This was a case of being pushed, at least in their minds, culturally, ideologically, fundamentally, they felt they did not belong in the Cape and the Karoo. They had been alienated in the land of their birth by the dreaded English. These initial trundling wagons were the first major parties of Boers under Andries Hendrik Potkita and Charles Saliers, aka Sarl. We're going to travel with these men and women and also join African leaders like Moshuesha, Mzalekatsi and Dingan as they watch the approach of heavily armed and well-organized settlers. Some of these regions initially saw the Boers as a threat and others saw them as an opportunity. Andries Hendrik Potkita was a resolute and single-minded farmer from the Craddock district in the Eastern Cape who had decided to leave with a group of extended family, neighbours and friends, 40 men and boys, and about the same number of women and girls, more than a 100 Khoisan slaves, all aboard more than 50 wagons. It was December 1835 when they crossed the Orange River, joined by Charles Salia's trek party, which included 25 men, attenuated by the arrival of Kaspar Krier's small section, the one in which a very young Paul Krier travelled. These two parties had crossed the Orange River separately, and it wasn't a crossing for the faint-hearted. The river was flooding, and the horses and oxen swam to the northern bank as the wagons and the trekkers and the other goods managed to float across on rafts made of the willow trees that grow along the banks. As the women stepped onto the northern side, they began to sing hymns, Here they were arriving on the hallowed land that they'd been hearing about for years. They'd left their hated English behind. Anything was better than that. Some of these Boers had helped fight the Amatkosa during the Sixth Frontier War, even as their countrymen, like Louis Trichard, had helped the Kosa fight the English. Speaking of Louis Trichard, part hero, part bandit, he had headed north already, although he came to a sticky end courtesy of the blight of malaria at Delagoa Bay, as you heard. But why did the Fortrekkers leave what they knew for a distant and mysterious future? The Boers had returned home during the Sixth Frontier War in May 1835 when they had returned to their farms to plant their mealies for the good of the colony. They had to leave most of their horses behind by order of the British, who said they'd need these to continue policing the frontier. The Boers would be handsomely paid for this, said to urban the governor, but the payments were underwhelming. By mid-1835, the Boers were viewing the new British colonial institution with a combination of fear and loathing. Earlier that year, the Select Committee on Aborigines had begun its work in England, and humanitarian Dr. John Philip had also just penned a column in the South African Commercial Advertiser, a publication edited by his son-in-law, John Fairburn, so Philip used a pseudonym. This column criticised the Boers and the settlers, blaming them for causing the Sixth Frontier War, which had ended on September 1835, courtesy of a peace treaty. Counting the cost of this war had begun, and the Boers felt particularly hard done by Back in England, Lord Glenelg, the colonial secretary, had also published his initial comments on matters of the frontier and blamed Governor d'Urban, the settlers and the Boers for causing the war. Glenelg was a passionate Christian these days, you'd probably call him born again, and he'd already heard Andre Stockenstrom's descriptions of how the Khoi and Khoza were treated by the Cape settlers. 
These same settlers were stunned by Stockenstrom's comments. They could not believe that he had turned his back on them after his family had suffered at the hands of the Kosa. His own father had been stabbed in the back by warriors and killed. A relief fund which the British government has set up to compensate farmers for their losses during the war did not extend to the Boers, only the English. Piet Ratif wrote a letter of complaint to Campbell, the civil commissioner in Grahamstown, and his hard words reflected the feelings of the Boers. After detailing how many cattle had been lost in various districts, Ratif warned that great danger and hardship continued and they should receive their due. The Boers felt they were victims of injustice, blaming the Cape administration for failing to provide them with protection before the start of the war. Then, after the signing of the peace treaty, Governor de Urban had promised the Boers the patrols would be stepped up, but there were not enough men or horses to carry out that promise. For the Boers, it was a case of the British lying all over again. Then de Urban ordered a list of all Boer boys and men to be drawn up so that he could call on them to ride on commando, but the Boers regarded this as the first step to being conscripted into the British army. The idea was so unpopular that the field coronets refused to provide any such list. Another source of dissatisfaction was de Urban's gunpowder rule. He withdrew the general licenses to sell gunpowder in a bid, he said, to stop the Khoikhoi and Amakosa getting hold of this stuff. And from now on, the government would have a gunpowder sales monopoly. Powder was already in short supply, and for the Boers, firearms were essential for their survival out there on the lonely felt. Lions, mad buffalo, rhino, elephants, sand, amatosa, white ex-soldier bandits, snakes, all posed a threat. You can imagine being one of these frontier farmers, your days away from your neighbour, let alone a village or a hamlet. To be left without gunpowder was suicide. The bad news just grew and grew. The Boers then discovered the looted cattle they'd helped locate from the Tkosa were going to be sold back to them in an auction instead of being donated. Those cows, of course, that survived the illnesses they were contracting by being held in over-concentrated British kraals. Just to add insult to injury, some of the Boers' branded animals were now being slaughtered to feed the British soldiers. It was all too much. More fuel was thrown on the fire of bitterness, when word filtered through to the frontier Boers that the English had fibbed about compensation that was supposed to be paid to former slave owners after emancipation. Less than half of these £3.4 million worldwide was now available, and the British had put a price of 73.9 shillings on each slave. 73.9 shillings and 11 pence, to be precise. That's around 10 rand in today's currency. A lot of money in 1835, but almost insulting, isn't it? Ten bucks for a human. The Boers thought so too. They regarded their slaves as far more valuable than a measly 73.9 shillings and 11 pence, and were outraged. So no compensation for the war? Then what of their slaves? Slavery was banned in December 1834, as you know, and the slave owners were supposed to be compensated, but here was London reneging on another promise. The British government said that all compensation furthermore would only be paid out in England, and Glenelg rejected an appeal from the Cape that payments be made locally. How was that going to work? Most of the Boers had never travelled to Cape Town, let alone London. Commissioning agents smelt blood. The cursed middleman who often pops up when bureaucratic rules are imposed, these middlemen and women who intersperse themselves between our income and some kind of service, these agents charged exorbitant commissions, signed up dozens of Boers, and sailed to England on their behalf to process the slave compensations. 
Once the commissioner in England approved compensation, the agent would return minus his cut, which in some instances amounted to 80% of the total. Then as a kind of last straw, the Boers were told 30 shillings had been deducted from the measly totals to cover another tax called the stamp duty. As the Cape prepared for an era without slavery, the Boers mortgaged their slaves for property or money. Sensing another opportunity, the swarm of agents arrived in Cape Town to purchase these claims from Boers who were now verging on bankruptcy, while others received less than a fifth of what they were owed. Many of the farmers around the Cape were now financially ruined by these fraudsters, and things were going to get a lot worse in 1836. That was when Lord Glenelg stuck the knife really deeply into the back of these Boers by announcing that he was overturning all of Governor de Urban's decisions regarding the ceded territory in the province of Queen Adelaide, which were going back to the Amakosa. The new Lieutenant Governor would be appointed for the Eastern Districts, a new treaty signed with the Kosa. Only missionaries were going to be allowed east of the Fish River, and any Boers or settlers found there would be thrown in jail or fined, or both. Glenelg invited Governor de Urban back to England to explain himself, a bit like the headmaster sending a note to a naughty boy in class to come and take six of the best. Why had he summarily annexed the entire region up to the Kai River and the Amatolas? It was time for him to explain. Clearly de Urban's days in the Cape were numbered. Make a case for yourself, said Glenelg in a letter, while simultaneously he sent a second letter to Sweden. That's where Andre Stockenström was living, and he was invited for a job interview. En route to London, the Swedish South African left his family in Holland, then headed on to the British Isles. There he was put through a series of what you could call job interviews by Glenelg, where the devout Christian pumped Stockenström for his views on the human condition, ostensibly focused on liberal theology. When the Swede passed the tests, he was told he was going back to Southern Africa as the new Lieutenant Governor of the Eastern Cape. But before this was made known in early 1836, the Boers had decided enough was enough. Of course, the slaves had decided long, long before that enough was enough. The system that turned men and women into property, this odious and insidious, inescapably evil, a despicable blot on the memory of human development, the slavery. Those who were now freeing themselves were an extraordinary mix of people. They were the Mardekas, the first free blacks of the Cape. The term is a Dutch corruption of the word Mardika, which originates from Sanskrit, Mahartika, and means rich, prosperous, and powerful. Not something you'd immediately relate to a slave, now is it? In Indonesia, this term was used to mean free slave, and the name for all Asians hired as soldiers by the Dutch VOC. They were brought to the Cape in the first days of the VOC, back in 1652. Most were Southeast Asian Catholic converts from the island of Ambon, and soon this phrase, Mardeka, came to mean any Creole mixed-race person or free black person. Just to add a layer of irony, because this is South African history, the first known Mardeka to the Cape was Antony Dalata van Japan, who was actually Japanese, and eventually freed along with his wife Groot Katrain van Bengal. She was from a region of modern-day Bangladesh. Antony Dalata van Japan's foster parents were Japanese slave owners Johan van Nagasaki and Johanna van Hirado. Antony was a child who was surrendered as debt bondage back in Japan. Another mind-blowing fact, one of the first mixed couples in South African history goes back to van Riebeck's time. A man from Japan married a woman from Bangladesh. You've got to love this strange history business. 
A number of these Mardeka freemen settled at the Cape and began to intermarry with freed slaves who were Asian, Malaysian, African. Other slaves or former slaves were different from the Mardekas. These were the Freya Swarten, the free blacks. They were craftsmen and soldiers, sailors, traders, as well as former slaves who'd been manumitted, the formal term for a freed slave. By 1800, there were 2,000 free blacks living in and around Cape Town. By the time of the Great Trek, the number of free blacks stood at 3,538. Most of these people had never been slaves. They were just free blacks, artisans, semi-skilled and skilled. They were not Amakosa, nor Batlaping, nor Baralong, nor Zulu. They were equal under the Cape law, and they were treated equally, even more bizarre to us thinking about these things these days. Besides these free blacks, a distinctive group of slaves were the Masbikas, almost all coming from West Africa, and tens of thousands were shipped into the Cape between 1652 and 1808, some believe as many as 70,000. About 2,000 of these were survivors or descendants of survivors of shipwrecks. More than 900 slave ships rounded the Cape between 1488 and the mid-1800s, and some of these came a cropper. One in three ships used to sink in this period, so it makes sense. In spite of the data collected by the VOC and the British, there's still a great deal of debate about exactly how many slaves were shipped to the Cape between 1652 and 1808. Mixed-race South Africans did not call themselves coloured at this time. That would only begin to happen informally much later in the 19th century. And the term would only appear on the first census in 1911, a year after the Union of South Africa. Historians generally agree that just over 60% of all enslaved people in the Cape were African or Madagascan. The rest, 40%, came from different parts of Asia. And boy, the diversity of people that make up the cosmopolitan folks of the Cape is jaw-dropping. Indian enslaved came from Surat, Bombay, Goa, Calcutta, Tochin, Tutikorin, all the way along the Malabar coast to Kerala, as well as Negapatnam, Trankubar, Pondicherry, Pulikat, Masulpatnam, up the Coromandel coast, then to Colombo and Gaul and Sri Lanka and West Bengal and Bangladesh. Folks, haul out a map. These people whose ancient ancestors walked out of Africa 70,000 years earlier were snaffled by the VOC and shipped from all corners of the Eastern world back into Africa, or Cape Town to be more specific. Look around the mother city today, you're going to see folks whose DNA comes from the Rakhine state of Myanmar, Burma, from Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Borneo, New Guinea, the Philippines, Formosa, what we call Taiwan these days, and Macau. Many more came from southern China, Dershima in Japan, and even the Solomon Islands. Some historians say the identity, which became known as Cape Malay, is false. It's a constructed identity. Only a minority of the enslaved actually came from Malacca, where Malaysia and Singapore are today. It was the Indonesian islands from where most slaves were shipped, not Malaysia. That doesn't mean that the term Cape Malay is not accepted, obviously, by people who call themselves that today. It's merely to explain how we got to this description. The term had more to do with the widespread use across South Asia in the shipping industry of the hybrid Portuguese Malayu language. The Cape residents called all slaves who were Muslim Cape Malay to distinguish them from non-Muslims because all emancipated slaves were mass-baptized as Christians once they were freed. It was a kind of quid pro quo. Quite a bit of interesting DNA work has been done recently that shows that most of the Southeast Asian South Africans of slave origin trace their ancestors to a range of islands in the Indonesian archipelago, not to Malaysia. 
Just add a little twist into our human cocktail. Many of these people are actually also descendant of Creole Chinese. The populations of Batavia, where the VOC was based and took slaves to the Cape, along with Sumatra and Java, were up to 50% Chinese origin by the 1600s. Imagine the poor apartheid social scientist purists trying to make sense of this heady mix of humans. We must whisper the next fact because it roils those who believe in race purity. You see, by 1835, a large proportion of trekkers had some of this rich Creole, Indonesian, Southeast Asian, Khoisan blood in their veins as they rolled away from the evils of Cape Town towards their promised land. These were the voortrekkers, not to be confused with the trekboers. Singing joyfully the two main voortrekker parties of Siliers and Hendrik Potgieter, Pars Philip Bolus, the Griqua town near where Kimberley is today, and trundled right past the sparkling diamonds that could be found lying on the ground. These random bits of gemstone were useless to the boers, and there are no stories about children picking them up and showing them off. That was later. Still, Blissfully unaware of the unbelievable treasure that lay beneath their wagons, they continued through Adam Kok II's territory unhindered. The Greek leader was also blissfully unaware of the treasures below. This wouldn't change for another 30 years, and then the South African story changes fundamentally. The Voortrekker parties were well received as they passed through Griqua territory, partly because the Salieris and Potgieter parties bought goods and supplies from Adam Koch's people, and partly because the Trekkers' language and culture was identical to the Griqua, their religion, their Bible, their version of felt Dutch now being spoken. Potgieter took it further, telling Adam Koch II that We are immigrants together with you. You dwell in the same strange land, and we desire to be regarded as neither more nor less than your fellow immigrants. This comment is enormously uplifting in a strange way. The men and women of the Transorangia were not fixating about their skin color. It was all about the culture, the religion, the mores, the values. It wasn't just them. The black chiefs north of the Griqua regarded these first Dutch trekkers as Griqua. They were just another set of Griqua families in their strange wagons carrying their muskets, riding their horses, women covering their heads in their cuppies, wearing long dresses, which is precisely how the Griqua women dressed. For the Baralong, the Batlaping and the Bataong, these drifters on the felt were also possible allies in their long fight against Nzalikatsis and Debele, just as the Griqua had been. They wanted guns to help protect themselves from the Zulus as well. They had every reason to be fearful. Dingaan was always planning raids over the Jockensburg. Baran Baran's commanders had failed to bring Mzilikatsi to heel, and now some of the chiefs saw the Boer horses and muskets and came to the conclusion that perhaps these people would succeed where Barant and Blum's drosters had failed. The Boers, Potgieter, Siliers, and the next trekkers were quite happy to enter into treaties with the African chiefs they met. The Boers did not rock up and start shooting, stealing land, and setting fire to everything. They were molded by the landscape, shaped by African political protocols. And yet they harbored a fatal self-centered belief that they didn't have to ask permission to travel through anyone's territory. Mzilikatsi was going to react very badly to this insult. The Boers knew that if they could establish themselves in the interior and then stabilize a route to the east to Delagoa Bay, they would bypass the accursed English and be able to set up an independent life. At least that was the plan. Louis Trichard's brief was to do justice along with 49 people, including seven Boers with their wives and 34 children. With them was Lang Hans van Rensburg, also with a party of 49, 10 men, 9 with their wives, 30 children. 
Van Rensburg was moving quicker than Trichard, so he headed northeast past Tabanshu, then veered along the Vaal River. It was close to Tabanshu that a terrible sound began to be heard under the wheels of the two-ton wagons. The iron-rimmed wagon wheels began to crunch over the bones of the people who'd lived there, but who'd been killed by the Ndebele over the past decade. The trekkers also came across abandoned homesteads, and they came to the erroneous conclusion no one lived there. Let me explain why it was erroneous, and it's a source of tension even now. The Ndebele had created an expanse of empty felt around their cattle-rich homesteads. They called it a march. This is very important, and we're going to end this episode with an explanation. Europeans knew full well what a march was. Sometimes it was called a mark. This was a borderland, opposed to a heartland, a border between realms, a neutral buffer zone in which no one set up any form of organized control. Sometimes it would be under joint control of two states. Different laws could apply inside this area. It served a political purpose as well as a military. From Zilikazi, it was a no-go zone where permission was required. Anyone entering the march was regarded as an enemy, and the Boers entered the march through the same direction as the Griqua and Basta raiders had from the southwest. Mzilagazi made it known that the correct route to visit him was from the west through Kuruman. The Boers had ignored his order. The concept of a march is as ancient as human organization. Europeans and Africans understood this concept profoundly. Marches in Europe were so pervasive they gave rise to titles such as the Marquis or Marquess. The word march predates European nation-states by some time going back to ancient Persia where Mars meant borderland, or Proto-German it was Marco, Old Norse Mork or borderland, a forest derived from Murki, a boundary. The Romans called the German tribes Marcomani, which meant men of the borderlands. When Nazi Germany seized Austria, Berlin renamed the country Ostmark, the ancient German word for eastern wood, eastern forest, eastern march. Forgive my digression, because it actually is central to understand how people were thinking back then. The Boers disregarded Mzilikazi's warnings that they should enter his territory as friends rather from the west, preferring to crunch across the bony felt, making their own an independent way into the land of the Ndebele, their march. They were purposeful in their circumvention of Mzilikazi's orders, and obviously this was not going to end well. The Baralong, the Bataung, the Basutu, everyone knew that this land through which the Boers were travelling was Mzilikazi's march, his border, his buffer zone. Enter at your own risk. The Boer leaders, Trichard van Rensburg, Potkia, Seliers, were all told about this. They ignored the warnings. Worse, the Ndebele were monitoring this group of trekkers and very quickly realised it was not the usual Griqua raiding party. No, here was an entire people, men, women, children, wagons, horses, herds, slaves, labourers, moving into their march. For the Boers, it was an empty promised land, full of felt grass waving in the breeze, green downs, lilies on wetlands, covered with wild animals, interspersed with meandering rivers. You can well imagine the excitement of a people who'd been living in the small Karoo around Graf Reinet or south of Colesburg as they stared out at this glorious land. As the Boers travelled, they stopped here and there to allow newborn lambs or calves to recover, giving thanks to the Lord before moving on, rolling along at a leisurely 8 to 15 kilometres a day. The women and girls would sit on the front of the wagon on the varkas, the wagon chest, while the boys and servants led the 16 oxen, lashing their shamboks as the beasts strained to pull the 2,000 kilogram wagons through thick grass, bumping over rock, 
crunching over bleached bones. Far to the east, by now, they could see the blue tips of the Drachensberg Mountains, visible even to the men who were walking or riding alongside the wagons, carrying their firearms. These muskets were their hereditary license, crucial in order to pursue their dreams. In their hands, they were deadly. Boers could fire and reload three times a minute. They learned to do this from nine or ten years old. Around their waists hung gunpowder horns, and behind the wagons, the herds of cattle sauntered along, corralled and surrounded by servants and slaves. The tracks these thousands of beasts left could be seen for months, and other trekkers used these early trails to guide themselves northeast. Waiting for them was one of the great leaders of southern Africa, King the I. Next episode, we'll hear how he built his mountain fortress of Tababusiu, the mountain of the night, a mesa in the valley of the little Caledon River. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me. There's an email form there. All through Twitter, direct message me at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.